Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. I have a confession to make. I am one of those people who, if you ask me what I like to read, or what I will read, I will often say anything, everything. I say that to folks when I'm selling books at my bookstore job. I've said it on podcasts for years and years, on the internet, to friends, to random strangers on the street. It is a universal tenet of how I have tried to put myself into the world. But it hasn't always been true. There is one particular genre that has always been the one genre that I have had trouble believing was for me, I think is how I want to put it. Or believing that it was the kind of thing that I would like reading. That genre is romance. Probably there are some gender expectations and stereotypes coming into play here, and honestly, there are some books that I have read that are probably classifiable as romance, but when I read them, I was like, oh, that's literary fiction, that's science fiction, that's mystery, whatever. I believed that I wasn't reading romance. Over the last few years, other readers whose opinions I trust immensely have come to me and said, now is the time. Romance is having a moment. It's more than you think it is. It's not just bodice rippers. You, of all people, need to give it a shot. And I kept saying, okay, I will, but never quite finding the right books, usually picking up something else off the shelf instead, until now. The theme of today's episode is love and power, or, as one of the authors on this episode put it, fealty and feelings, which I have now discovered is exactly my shit. Oh, a quick note. This episode contains some conversations about sexual assault, depression, anxiety, and I thought I should give you all a heads up. Foz Meadows is a queer Australian author, essayist, reviewer, poet. She's the winner of two Best Fan Writer Awards, a Hugo in 2019 and a Dittmar Award in 2017. She received the Norma K. Hemming Award in 2018 for her Shakespearean queer novella, Coral Bones. Her writing has appeared in various venues, including Uncanny, Apex, Goblin Fruit, HuffPo, Strange Horizons. Her new novel, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, is about two men forced into a political arranged marriage. Vellison or Vel, never planned to get married. He's a gay man living in a country called Ralia, where such things are completely forbidden. He ends up being betrothed to a girl from the neighboring country, Tithina. After he's unexpectedly and rather violently outed, it seems as though everything is going to go to hell. But instead, the diplomat who's arranging the union just says, well, you could marry her brother. Said brother is a man named Cathari, or Kay. He has no love lost for the Rallians, and Vel and Kay are instantly thrown into a tumultuous and dangerous relationship. There are tons of political ramifications both at home and abroad, and as the two of them start to realize that they might be the only people who they can trust, they also, unsurprisingly, start to fall in love. It is a delicious, fascinating, deeply heartfelt novel. One that I never could have imagined was the kind of thing that I would fall so hard for. And I admitted this to Foz right when we started talking. 
But I'm very sympathetic to this thing you've said about having to take a while to realize that romance is a thing for you. That's definitely a trajectory that I personally have been on because particularly when you are a fab growing up, the assumption is that you must love romance, that you must love this particular genre. And I'm a very contrary person. The more somebody tells me something, particularly when I was younger, that I was told, this is for you and you will like it, the more I would dig my heels in and say, no, I will not. And the thing is also Hollywood rom-com, particularly through like the 90s, not very good. There's a few standouts and then the rest of it kind of makes you want to walk into the ocean and never emerge. So I would get really, really angry at this idea of romance because my baseline concept of it was very heteronormative, often really badly constructed Hollywood rom-coms. Whereas I really loved the romances in Shakespeare and Austen, and that felt not rebellious exactly, but it felt like, aha, they are doing it correctly and this is doing it wrong. And it left me in this position and it took me a long time to work through what was going on there and realize, oh, okay, it's not that I dislike tropes, it's that I dislike tropes being done in a sexist and bad, annoying way. And then I discovered fan fiction. I was like, oh, this is so much better when it's queer. Oh, now I see us leaning into the tropes and I understand why I like this one so much, but not this one, or I like these two together, but not these two together. And suddenly it just made sense. Romance is inherently political and it's inherently sociological. And I think that goes because, you know, as most things that are designated broadly in our culture as for women, it gets seen as being frivolous and silly and shallow when actually it can be those things. And it can be very fun to be those things because we don't want rich intellectualism every single time. Sometimes we just want the popcorn meal and that's also fine. Because it gets branded as those things, people, some people don't consider that it can have depth. And I think that's the thing that a lot of us who now like romance, but who initially bounced off it because of the way it was presented to us, that's sort of the learning trajectory we go on where it's like, oh, okay, now that I see the tropes and I see that they have names and I'm investigating why this presentation of it works for me, but not that one. And I realize, oh, it's because I'm looking at this from a political standpoint or a sociological standpoint, and I need the human elements here. I need the emotional logic and the contextual logic of where these people are to work for why they're making those decisions? Why are they choosing to do this instead of that? Why does this emotional through line make sense or why doesn't it make sense? You used the word focus at one point and it made me think of another question I wanted to ask you about, which is the point of view shifts. Vel is first person and Kay is third person. And I, I get giddy about this stuff. I'm such a nerd about it. <laughs> I just want to know about where those choices came from. If you made different choices in earlier drafts, like tell me all about it. Okay. So it was always Vel first person, K third person. I started with Vel and his voice kind of flew onto the page. I find it very easy to write in his voice. And I still am at the moment because I'm working on the sequel, which I'm very excited about. But yeah, Vel's voice felt very organic to me. And I wanted to, when I switched to Kathari's sections, I wanted to make his voice distinct. Obviously, you can write two first-person voices that are distinct in terms of word choice and structure and flow. But I just wanted to show like a different perspective. And I thought it would be a more solid contrast between the two of them. If you've got Vel's first person perspective and then Kaithari, you're seeing what he's going through slightly from outside. You're almost seeing it as Vel would if Vel were present in these moments. And sometimes he is and sometimes he's not. But you're seeing simultaneously what he could see if he was paying attention or if he was there. But also I can slip in some of Kay's internality. So you can contrast the observation and secret heart of it. I find that pleasing. I like seeing both sides of it in that way. Yeah. And both for the reader and for the characters, it helps introduce 
you know, with any book, but particularly with a fantasy book, when you start reading something, you're like, this is a new place. It's a new world. It's a new civilization. There's new things that I need to learn about. And you got to do a little bit of that in a very conscious way. And Vel's, what the hell is this thing? What's happening? Why is it happening this way? This is totally different from how I'm used to it. And then also showing somebody who is much more used to it, who grew up in that society being like, yep, this is how things are here. Oh my God, of course, I didn't think about the fact that it might be different for you. And I really liked the way that those two things played off of each other. That's the thing about culture shock. There's always two sides to the culture shock. There is the, why would you do it this way? And why would you not do it this way? I grew up in Australia. And when you grow up in Australia, you grow up with a lot of British and a lot of American culture, because that's what you get primarily on TV and in terms of music. So you learn this weird one-sided cultural exchange because you grow up knowing different things about America and England and just the UK generally. You say, oh, I recognize that this is a Scottish accent as opposed to a Lancashire accent or a London accent. And you watch American shows and you're like, oh, I know this is a New York accent instead of a Texas accent. And you learn about these different regions, but you are not similarly perceived by those countries. It's not an even exchange of cultural output. I lived in the UK for five years and now I live in the US and I've been here for four years or approaching four years. And it's fascinating because in both cases, you go in saying, oh, I know some things because I've grown up with your culture because that's the kind of cultural export thing that we live in. My country is smaller than yours and it's like not geographically, but on the international scale in terms of cultural output we do less, we are seen less. So I'm used to you, but you're not used to me. And so I think you can have this proximity of two countries like Raleigh and Tiffana in the book, and yet they don't necessarily know about each other in the same ways or to the same extent. And what Kathari knows, you know, he's grown up as a scion of a noble house. He's grown up learning to speak Raleigh and as a trade and diplomatic language. He's honed that skill because unfortunately, you know, there have been clashes between the two countries at the border and he has been dealing with that for the better part of a decade. So he mostly knows Raleigh and as a way to interrogate prisoners. Whereas Velison in his country, the language of Tithana is used as a language of court secrets and intrigue. And so he has learned the language and all of the words that it contains that don't have direct counterparts in Raleigh and like words for a husband's husband, for instance. He has learned all of this, but without necessarily understanding the full cultural context into which it fits. And I love those ways in which language and culture are so intertwined that it doesn't necessarily occur to us that a certain thing is not a universal thing until we step outside our own space and go, oh, actually, hang on. I thought everyone did this, but no. Speaking of translation, there's a moment that I had to put the book down. I was laughing so hard, not for anything that's actually necessarily textual, but just because I had this sensation. I'm going to try to describe this and I don't think it's going to work, but <laughs> I had the sensation of realizing that I was reading the subtitles the whole time, but I was 175 <laughs> pages into the book. There's a moment where Vel is like a de-escalation, a step down. And Kathari is like, what, what, what did you just say? And then Vel explains it and Kathari goes, you mean de-escalation. And that moment of like, I too felt like a visitor, I guess, is the way that I was thinking about it, which is something that I don't consciously think about even when I'm reading fantasy. I love that because one of the things that you can get really into the weeds with if you are remotely nerdy about language when you're writing any kind of secondary world or advanced future setting where you're making up a language is the awareness of presenting a fictional language in the language that you speak, which is a real language. And so you have this awareness suddenly of where the words in your language come come from. And you have to suddenly think, oh, is this anachronistic? There are a number of French words 
in English, words with the French origin. And you suddenly become aware when you are trying to use one of those words, when you're aware that you're functionally translating for your characters, because your characters are not really speaking English, they're speaking whatever language you've made up for them. And particularly when you are drawing attention to the language, you suddenly say, oh, but is it jarring if I use a French word here? Because it makes the reader aware that there's no France in this setting, but there's no England either. So it shouldn't be more incongruous. And yet, because it draws the reader's attention to the language on the page, you can start going back and back and saying, oh, you can't use this word and you can't use, like the idea of in fashion, a Peter Pan collar. You know, you could have very easily a fantasy setting where you describe someone as wearing that, but Peter Pan is a fictional story of our world. So you can't call it a Peter Pan collar. Or an Adam's apple is a common one that comes up in fantasy because we call it an Adam's apple because of Adam and Eve, because of Christianity. But if you're writing in a world that has no Christianity, but that's the English term, you have to come up with a different word for it, which is nonetheless still recognizable. I love that idea that you're effectively translating for a language that doesn't exist except in your head and you're having to make these distinctions. Since writing the first book, probably near the end of writing the first book, I've gotten really into C dramas and K dramas. And it's really wonderful, firstly, getting like this whole new ocean of content to enjoy. But when you're looking at the way things are translated and you suddenly start to get a different sense of, oh, look, the way English is structured is actually really weird compared to a lot of other languages in the world. And you're aware that nuance is being missed or you're aware in a translation or you're aware that a localization decision has been made to try and make something make more sense to you. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. And I think that's that's kind of cool, actually. It gets so fun in a very meta way when you do start to think about that thing of it's not that the language doesn't exist, but we don't know that language. We don't know the rest of this world. And yet also there is still that feeling. There's a cool level of consciousness that happens that I guess what I'm describing is just the magic of books, really. Yeah. I mean, I always think stories are the best magic that we have, you know, in a world that most of the time seems like it has none. We create whole worlds and we put them in ink and dead trees. And that makes a whole other thing happen in somebody's brain that you couldn't do otherwise. Speaking of magic and other worlds, I want to keep going a little bit on, I guess, the world building of this, because... I think fantasy and science fiction can make you look at the world outside our sort of quote unquote normal world a little bit differently than you did before. And I wanted to know how much, I mean, you said that you're writing the sequel and so maybe your answer to me is just, you'll find out. But how much work went into building the world around these two that didn't necessarily make it onto the page? So I am somebody who, when I world builds, I tend to have a world building document kept off to the side where I keep track of invented terminology and things that I've made up. And it always strikes me whenever I open up that document and I look at the list of tabs, basically, what kind of things do you need to invent? So you end up with this list down the side saying, here are the subheadings of calendar, magic, signs and language, places, religion, animals, plants and food, clothes, the map, currency, governance. All of these things that you realize go into making a world that if you were writing in Earth in the present day, you don't really have to consider because you know they're just kind of there. And yet, obviously, there's so many of them that if you write something even a tiny sideways step from what you personally are familiar with, you do have to do research because all of that information is there. And so then I find it really interesting that there's so much that you can get into the weeds with in terms of really geeking out, creating like a structure of government or a social hierarchy or a religious institution 
information. And sometimes I will completely go ham with it and create these vast reams of information that I have where, you know, three pages of data will support one line or one paragraph that appears in the finished thing. Sometimes that means I end up with this wealth of information that I can fall back on later in the book when I'm suddenly like, oh, what would happen here? What would do this? And I say, aha, I've actually already come up with an answer to that, unbeknownst to me. If it occurs to me that there is a cultural reason why somebody is acting or doing or saying a certain thing, and I've written down what that is. Even if I don't put that explanation in the text, I need to know for me what is guiding the character in that moment, what is guiding the decision in that moment. And sometimes you do have to put it in the book because the reader also needs at least a hint sometimes. It makes you very aware of all of the ways in which you grow up learning a very specific cultural or social or religious or familial system of how the world works. And then we don't necessarily realize that other people do things differently until we start to meet other people or until we travel or until we just start consuming new media and we go, oh, hang on. Yeah, there are so many of these moments as Kay and Val get to know each other where they sort of realize, oh, this is not how I thought it was. And some of those are played for fun. There's one that I want to ask you about in a little bit. But one of them that I thought was really sweet is related to the earlier intimate moments between Kay and Val. On the one hand, dealing with anxiety and depression, and then even more specifically dealing with the aftermath of Vel's sexual assault and Vel feeling like he can't talk about it or like he doesn't know how to talk about these things and Kathari taking the time to learn is so open and accepting and kind and I, I thought it was just so well done and I really wanted to hear you talk about writing it. Well, I mean, so obviously... Anytime you write a story that has sexual assault in it, instantly that's going to be a hard no for some people. And I respect that. So that's why there's a trigger warning at the start of the book. And so obviously trigger warning to this part of the discussion. Part of what I wanted to express by putting that in the book, it's frustrating to me that when you do include sexual assault or something of that nature in a story, that people say, well, why did you do that? Why did it need to have that? And it's like, look, a story doesn't need to have anything. A story doesn't need to exist at all. The whole point is that you think this particular element has value. And if somebody doesn't want to read that, that's fine. There are heaps of stories that don't include it more power to you. I shouldn't have to justify including this element at all as though it's something taboo and wrong. But at the same time, I do understand why people are like, well, I would have preferred exactly this story, but where the assault takes place off page or where it isn't there. Again, I get that, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong for it to exist in the form that it does. So with all of that being said, what I was trying to convey with it is there is this assumption a lot of the time, because society, let's face it, is pretty, pretty terrible at dealing with any kind of sexual assault or rape or sexual harassment and treating it as a real problem. But one of the things that makes this so much worse is the, let's say, burden of proof that gets put on victims. And it's not just a burden of proof in terms of emotional presentation, of having to perform because it often is a performance if you have to go, for instance, to the police and say, I was assaulted. There is an expectation that victims will cry or sob or behave in a very particular way when actually it's a very individual experience. Some people respond to trauma by laughing. Some people respond to trauma by shutting down completely and having a flat affect. Some people will seesaw between control and weeping. Everybody has their own response to what happens to them. And a lot of the time that gets held against victims as though, oh, I thought you'd react like this, but you've reacted like that instead. And that makes me question the thing that you're saying. So not only is there this emotional burden of proof that's put on victims, there's a physical burden of proof in terms of, to put it in the blunt, ugly way that one must, the damage that is done to you, the physical damage that is done to you. And it is often seen by certain, let's say, assholes, 
that if you are not damaged physically to a certain extent, then it can't really have been that bad and it can't really have happened. And that just makes me so infuriated and so angry on a molecular level. And that's part of why I've written what happens to Vel the way it does. So it's a traumatic assault in large part because it results in his outing. The act is interrupted, but it is not recognized as an assault by the people who see it. So it's just all of the trauma of his homophobic father and society saying, oh, you're a gay man. We hate you now with none of the recognition of what he's just been through, but also because it's at the hands of a former partner, somebody that he had loved and cared for and thought he could trust and who manifestly has just proven that that is not the case. That betrayal and the circumstances of it and the fear that he experiences of not being able to call out because of the exact reason that unfolds, which is the people around me in this society will not draw a distinction between an assault and a consensual liaison where I am concerned because I am a man who likes men. Knowing that he can't rescue himself or try to rescue himself without at the same time condemning himself in their eyes, there is a particular kind of despair that comes from that. So often, if somebody is raped or assaulted and they dare to report it, the question is, well, why were you there in the first place? Why were you drinking? Why were you wearing that? Why did you go with this person? And subjected to this inquisition about their motives when it's nothing to do with them at all and everything to do with the assailant. What has happened to Val? He's got a couple of small bruises. It's not a violent assault in terms of him physically being injured. It is very violent in terms of what it does to him emotionally and in terms of the fear and the trauma that he experiences. But because he doesn't have injuries that he can show to people and say, look, look, I didn't ask for this. It puts this other level of silence on him where he already knows he's not going to be listened to. But would it make a difference if he could? But that's... It puts this whole other sort of burden on a victim to say, oh, if only you'd been hurt worse, then it would be easier for me to believe you. And that's a horrific thing to say to somebody who has been assaulted. But that is functionally what our society says so often. I have a lot of feelings about this, some of them personal, some of them related to, you know, whatever. But what do we do when we have these feelings? We put them in fiction where we can deal with them safely and in a controlled fashion. Yeah, exactly. So the other sort of culture shock thing that I found myself thinking about a lot while I was reading this. I don't know if you are experiencing this or listeners, if you're experiencing this, but it appears to me to be peak wedding season for millennials right now. I have been to several weddings this summer. I was reading this book at one of them and I found myself looking around and I made a note, weddings, exclamation mark, politics, exclamation mark, Wedding politics, double exclamation mark. And I think, you know, I feel like an anthropologist, people watching at these weddings and seeing the like, oh, okay, so that's why the tables are set up this way. Or like, oh, they, that's why this thing is happening. I loved so much the, I forget what the term is now, but like the wedding ceremony as opposed to the wedding itself, which for anybody who hasn't read the book is going to be like, what are you talking about? You'll see when you read the book. (laughs) So I wanted an excuse in the book for the marriage to happen quickly for plot reasons. And I thought, well, okay, let's just have a different system, a different set of expectations around how this works. And as soon as I had that thought, it kind of tied into the ideas I had about Tithonai culture being sort of more sexually and gender-wise egalitarian than Raleigh. And it's like, well, okay, my idea of what a marriage looks like is very shaped by heteronormative Christian cultural defaults. So what if we take those away and we say, okay, even in a marriage of alliance, we're making a distinction between the physical union happening and then celebrating that it's working because we're going to have a system that allows for people to have been married for three months who are married for reasons of alliance. I actually know, sorry, we hate this. We're stopping. 
because in a system where you don't have that drive to just marry a man and a woman and make them be together forever, but when the whole point is for it to be successful, where success has a different definition than the Christian definition of success, which is staying together forever no matter what. And obviously that's not every Christian definition. That is some that is a Christian definition because it contains multitudes, just getting that out of the way. But you suddenly have this idea of, okay, we get married basically in what we would consider rushing to the registry office and then the marriage is legal. And then we don't really have the big party for it right away. We might have a little gathering, the marriage gathering to say, hey, this is my new spouse. We're together now. We're married. But the really big party where all of the families come in, that doesn't happen for a few months yet until we have proof that the marriage is working. And then we celebrate, yay, this thing that we did worked. And also it means you've got an excuse to have two parties. And that's a very human <laughs> thing. It's like, but what if we could have two parties? Yeah. I keep coming back to my own, I don't know, lack of expectations or understanding about romance as a genre. And so I keep thinking about, gosh, it feels reductive to say it like this, but the politics or the romance, which came first? Or or was it that they were always intertwined? I think they mostly twined because in my head, it's not really two separate things. There is this interconnectedness of everything where it's sort of like an onion with layers, to use the classic Shrek example. What you're seeing with what Kay and Vel are going through is here is our emotional reaction to the situation that we have put in. But our emotional reactions are informed by the contexts that have raised us and the context in which we exist now. And that is invariably shaped by the events going on, which are also informing that context. It's a sort of back and forth symbiotic relationship. You know, one of these things is not separate from the other. They're just kind of facets of the whole. And so where it would get sticky is where there'd be a particular aspect of what was going on, the implications of which I hadn't fully grappled with yet. And so the way my brain works very helpfully when I'm writing is that everything will kind of flow in a regular way, sometimes very fast, sometimes just at an average pace, but it will flow until suddenly it doesn't. And the point at which it doesn't, 99 times out of 100, what that means is that my hind brain, my subconscious brain, wherein everything is stored, has detected that my conscious brain has made an error and is taking the story in the wrong direction or has missed something that I need to include. But it won't tell me what that is. You're sort of sitting there going, why can't I write? And the unconscious brain is going, stars, not in alignment, cannot do this scene. And you sort of go, well, okay, could you tell me what the problem is more specifically? No. And so you just have to figure it out. And it's like, God damn it. I'm endlessly fascinated by and annoyed with my own brain and the way it does this because it's just every single time I'll, I'll sit there thinking, oh, can I not write anymore? Is this it? Is this where I just lose the ability to do it? Oh, wait, no, I was just having a problem. It's always just this little stop sign coming up because some subconscious brain gremlin is doing the narrative processing ahead of my conscious brain. And it's like a staticky, laggy old internet connection between the two where head empty, only the early 90s modem dial up noise you know, <laughs> until I figure out what the fuck the problem is. Alexandra Rowland is the author of A Conspiracy of Truths, A Choir of Lies, Finding Fairies, and they're also the co-host of the Hugo Award-nominated podcast, Be the Serpent. They hold a degree in world literature, mythology, and folklore from Truman State University. Their latest book is A Taste of Gold and Iron. It is, as you might have guessed, another political romance. A quick little peek behind the curtain here. As we were putting together this season of the show, one of the first books that I read was A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. 
riding some truly wild endorphins on my newly discovered enjoyment of romance fiction, I emailed Giselle Gonzalez over at Tor to say, oh my gosh, I really loved this. I had no idea I was going to love this. Do you have anything else that might be up my street? She responded immediately and said, oh, do I have the book for you? The story follows Cadeau, who is a young prince. His sister is the queen. He has just been bumped down in the line of succession because she has just had a baby. Cadeau does not get along with the father of this child and manages to insinuate some things. One thing leads to another. There's a horrific, deadly accident. Suddenly, Cadeau is out of favor with the court, in danger, and given a new, chilly bodyguard, a man named Evermer. Cadeau decides that he wants to take some responsibility, win back some favor, and he starts to investigate a break-in at a guild. But as the two of them start to uncover a deep-running, counterfeiting conspiracy, they realize that they are the only ones who can trust each other. And with trust, maybe comes a little bit of love. When Alexandra and I sat down to start talking, I said the same thing to them that I said to Foz, about how I didn't know that romance could be for me, and I was fascinated to learn that the same thing that had been true for me, that it turned out to have been true for Foz, was also... True for when Alexandra and I sat down to start talking, I said the same thing to them that I said to Foz about how I didn't know that romance could be for me. And I was fascinated to learn that the same thing that was true for me and for Foz was also kind of true for Alex. I had a similar kind of thing happen to me a few years ago, coming up on the better part of a decade, actually. I'd been trying to read romance for a long time, and I just wasn't clicking with it. And I loved fanfic. I loved romantic fanfic. And I have a friend who's super, super into romance. So I kept saying, like, recommend me a favorite. I, I really want to see what the allure is and why so many people love this genre so much. And she wrecked me like three or four books, and I read all of them, and they just didn't click with me. And a couple years later, another person recommended one to me. And what I discovered was that I don't have any interest in reading about heterosexuals falling in love. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I love, I love queer romance novels with all of my heart. That was a wonderful kind of discovery to make, that awareness that it's such a personal preference. And the kind of romance novels that you like are so dependent on what your heart is hungry for. It's so funny, too, because, like, of course that is a widely accepted thing about most other genres. Like some people don't like space opera, but they like a little bit of science fiction. There's subgenres. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is such a funny thing to realize in hindsight. But I think that the mainstream culture does have kind of a tendency to lump all romance together into one thing, often in a kind of derogatory way, right? Because so many people yeah. just do not respect the genre of romance, which is a shame and a crime because there's some really amazing stories out there. But I think that is kind of like a contributing factor into why I was struggling so much to get a foothold in it. Well, and then to go from wanting to get a foothold in it as a reader to writing one. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, like I said, I had loved fan fiction for ages and I've loved romantic fan fiction. I think the anecdote that is springing to mind was that when I was first writing this, coming up on seven years ago, I was going through this really interesting head space. I hadn't realized that I was non-binary 
non-binary at that point. And I hadn't realized that I was demisexual at that point. And I was just starting to query agents for my first novel and writing the first draft of this book on the side. And I remember having a conversation with someone about how insecure I felt about writing specifically a queer romance book. Because at that point, seven years ago, the industry was so much different than it is now. We have this amazing golden age of queer literature right now, which was just starting about seven years ago. And I was really insecure. I was worried that like, oh, what if I get pigeonholed as only writing queer books? But this is something that's so important to me. I want to include queer people and their lives in all different aspects of what life means, right? But oh no, like what if people think that I only write queer books? And now seven years later, I'm like, no, I do only write queer books. Like <laughs> this is not a problem. Please pigeonhole me. Because when you pigeonhole someone, it makes it easier for other people to find that thing, right? I basically learned everything that I know about writing from reading fan fiction. I had a podcast for four years, Be the Serpent, which was very much about interrogating both fan fiction and traditionally published literature and mainstream media through the same kind of lens of literary criticism. I started writing this just because like the trope of the honorable lord and his loyal retainer or his loyal vassal is my favorite trope of all time. And I hadn't found exactly the book of my heart that answered that hunger. And so I was like, I guess I'll just have to write it myself. Uh, <laughs> so uh, fealty and feelings is it's, I have named this trope in my head. Oh my god, that is that is the exact subgenre that is that has been my doorway into romance. Actually, speaking of subgenres, this is also an absolutely thrilling political intrigue novel. I wanted to know about taking those two particular subgenres and blending them together. I mentioned that I started writing this about six years ago. This has been through like seven different drafts. And when I say seven different drafts, I mean like starting over from page one with a new plot every single time. Almost everything about this book has changed, including all of the main characters' names except for the main two, Kato and Evamer. The setting, the world building, the magic system, the plot, like a huge overhaul every time. And it was never something that frustrated me because I was enjoying the process of writing this book so much that every time I had to do it, it was because I had learned something new about myself and what I wanted this book to be. Because I set out to write the most like, self-indulgent possible book that I could. It was really just to make me happy. Hopefully it will make other people happy. But every time I started it over, it was because I had learned something new about what made me happy and how I could bring the book closer to that. So balancing it between the political intrigue side of it and the romance, I guess that happened just because that's the sort of thing that I like. It helps to, when you're writing a romance, uh, it does help uh, give them something to do their hands to <laughs> so that they have something to cooperate on you know and a medium through which to learn about each other to learn what each other's values are and what kind of people they both are and on the plot side of things there's the plot side and the feeling side on the plot side of things it helps having the existence of such intense feelings helps deepen it helps make the 
stakes seem higher and helps just give it more richness and texture. And I think the other thing that makes it work the way that it does is the way that the feelings thread and the plot thread intersect with each other and influence each other and how the main characters are forced to grow as individuals before they're capable of meeting each other in the middle to both solve the plot and to solve the feelings. Yeah. I mean, how like life, right? Like that's such, that's the goal is that you figure at least some of your own shit out right. <laughs> before you decide to tie yourself down with somebody yeah, else. Yeah, like the way that Kado has to grow confident enough to make decisions about what he's going to do and what's important to him and the next steps on the investigation. He's very much paralyzed by his anxiety at the beginning. Learning that a decision is better than no decision even if it's an imperfect one, because there's never going to be a perfect decision. And I also, as someone who has severe anxiety, which is better now than it used to be, thank you, medication. That was something that I very much had to learn myself as well, because I've definitely been in situations where I was so paralyzed, waiting for a perfect solution to present itself, when really an imperfect, okay kind of decision would have done me better in that circumstance. Yeah, this, I mean... I talk about this with my therapist probably every other week. It really hit home with me. The way that Kado's anxiety manifests, the way it was depicted in the book, I tend towards the depressive side, sort of with a side helping of the anxiety. But I felt like this was truly the first time that I have seen my own interior, internal thing. I just, I don't know that I've ever seen it so well depicted on paper. It feels vulnerable. Yeah, I, I think so. Kado's anxiety is certainly dialed up from what mine felt like before I was on medication. Mine was, I think, mostly comorbid with ADHD. And so once I got on medication for ADHD, my anxiety went way, way down. It still crops up every now and then because that's kind of the nature of the beast. <laughs> it's, it's just so much more manageable now. And so I was very much looking at my own experiences and what it felt like to be living with this and then kind of extrapolating it to make it more vivid, which you sometimes have to do when you're writing just to make it really clear to your audience what you're doing. Because if you try to do it too subtly, especially in a setting like this where Kado doesn't have the words for what he's going through, like he's labeling it cowardice. He is labeling it chronic nerves. He's saying like, oh, I'm just high strung. Like he doesn't have a concept concept of anxiety as a mental illness. He sees it as just a mental weakness. And that's quite real, I think, for a lot of people too, because I certainly said things like that before I admitted like, oh, I, I think I actually have an anxiety problem. So just like dialing it up so that even though he doesn't have the words to describe what it is or to label what it is, it's clear that he's kind of being an unreliable narrator just because of his own ignorance on this subject. And Evimer gets to a point where he's realizing that himself. He's realizing that Kado might not be a reliable narrator about his own experiences. Towards the end of the book, Evimer goes to do fantasy therapy 
and suggests to Kado that he might benefit from that as well. And Kado, classically for people who have anxiety disorders, is like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't think that would help me at all. I don't have to do that. I think eventually Kevimer will like keep gently offering this to him and Kado might eventually go do some fantasy therapy. But I built that as part of the religion because humans have always needed mental health support. And before the modern age, we were getting a lot of that from religion or our religious leaders, people talking to priests or holy men about here's what I'm going through, here are my problems. And, you know, they might not have had good solutions. On the other hand, maybe they did for some people. Maybe that was the help that some people needed. In the modern age, of course, we have just more variety of different ways of helping people so that we can help more people rather than just the people who benefit from this one solution. Anyway, so like that's quite a real experience resisting this thing that might help you because now that you feel stable, you think that that's fine and you don't need the extra support or you don't need to do like proactive measures to take care of yourself and to build the tools to help you while you are stable rather than only dealing with things when you're in a crisis. That resonates so much. It took me so long. And I was also the guy who with my friends was like, hey, therapy's great. You should do, I think it's a great, you should do it. Yeah. And then I'd be like, oh, but no, 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 no. It's not Not, not for me. Not me. Oh, yeah. Speaking of decision making, one of the reasons that I have long found romance kind of unapproachable is that readers of romance seem to, as I understand it anyway, from the handful who I've known in my reading life, that there are specific beats to be hit. There are specific equations that happen. And if they don't happen, people get kind of pissed. And I was wondering if you were thinking about as you were writing, I don't know, if there was ever a moment where the story was not going to end up like it did, to put it in a non-spoilery term for anybody who hasn't read the book yet. But I've been thinking about all of these tropes and the ones that romance readers really look for as they're reading. And I was wondering if you were thinking about that as you were writing. So I knew that it was always going to have a happy ending just because I didn't want to write a tragedy. Tragedies make me sad. (laughs) Tragedies make me sad. Breaking news. It took some exploration about how exactly they were going to get there and just like a process of discovery. But as long as I was following the main goal, which was to write the book of my heart, to write like the most self-indulgent possible thing that I could, I didn't really have issues with the feelings thread going in a way that I didn't like. You know, the the plot thread had to be reworked a few times, but Kato and Evermer, their relationship was always there from the beginning. And that was the one thing in the book that never, ever changed was the fact that here are these two characters, watch them fall in love. Actually, fun fact, the anxiety didn't develop until I think the second or third draft originally he was going to be getting like visions from a god and it was going to be kind of a Joan of Arc revolution kind of thing like some of the symptoms that he was having vertigo and dizziness from getting these visions I was like no I don't want him to be like getting visions from a god but there's something here about these symptoms that he's going through those sound a lot like kind of anxiety symptoms let's play that (laughs) up anyway so back to what romance readers expect I do agree that romance novels have a structure in the same way that a sonnet has a structure which we don't think about for sci-fi books or fantasy books, we do kind of see it that way for mysteries, because mysteries also have a 
structure. Like it's not a sonnet unless it has this number of lines and this rhyme scheme and this meter, right? It has to hit all of those things. If it's missing one of those things, it might be close to a sonnet, but it's not a sonnet. In the same way, a romance novel has to hit these particular structural things. Otherwise, it's not a romance novel. I think that I've gotten them with this book. I'm a little bit off, I think, in terms of the moments of physical intimacy because the perfectly structured romance novel, this part can have some variation in it, but like a perfectly structured romance novel has the moment of increased physical intimacy at the 25% mark, the 50% mark, and like around the 95% mark. I don't know exactly where the, the beats fall for that. And there's more than three of them, obviously. But I, I think I got somewhere in the ballpark with the rest of it. So I was more trying to follow the tropes of fan fiction that I really like, rather than like the structure of romance novels. So I was like, what are all the tropes that I like? Well, Enemies to Lovers is great. I'll do Enemies to Lovers. And I'll do Only One Bed like five times. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll do Kissing to Overt Suspicion because that's also one of my self-indulgent favorite tropes. Instead of having it fit specifically a romance novel, I was writing it like it was a fantasy book and it kind of turned out to also fit romance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you were saying those things, those moments in the book were popping up in my mind and I was like, oh yeah, that was great. Oh yeah, that was great too. Uh, <laughs> but it is, I mean, for all of the reasons that we've been discussing, the world at large still sort of looks even more askance at fan fiction than it does at romance and it's certainly still very new to me but so many of the authors who I love are increasingly so open and conversant in it and it's really neat to sort of learn where these things come from yeah I, I completely agree I think that so many of the especially the newer generation of writers like my generation and the one just below me a little bit of the generation just above me as well like we grew up with fan fiction my generation especially like we were the first generation that was entirely on the internet from when we were kids and so we grew up with fanfic and so many people are conversant in it and I think it has done some really interesting things to the way in which we write and the sorts of things that we write about and the depth of character that people go into. I'm just seeing so many more character-driven books and so much better representation across the board. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like there are so many fields in which we can still be doing better with representation, but the fact that we have characters who are confronting issues of mental illness or who are allowed to be vibrantly queer in lots of different ways. And of course, all of the increased representation that we're getting for peoples of different races and ethnicities, it's really heartwarming to look at where we are now and look back at where we were 10 or 15 years ago, because we have come a long, long way. In like a very short, relatively speaking, amount of yeah. time too, which is even more exciting, that sense of where do we go now? Where do we go next? Yeah, it's, it's really a positive and exciting thing to look forward to. I agree. So I want to talk to you about the touch tasting, which is the very cool magic system that you've put into this book, where Cadeau and a couple of other people have this ability to touch a piece of metal and they can kind of tell what metal it is. I don't think I've ever read anything like it. I, I 
want to know everything about it. This came about because, for one thing, I really like writing quite low magic. I like there to be magic because magic is fun and I'm a nerd. But I love world building so much that if I write a magic system that is too big and powerful and complicated or too widespread, I start worrying about like the economics. And of course, if you've read A Taste of Golden Iron or like my other books, <laughs> you know that economics is a thing that I always touch on. So I was like, what's the smallest magic system that I can come up with? Just like no effect whatsoever, except for like one little thing. And then also, of course, any time that you can make that impactful on the plot is a great thing. I forget at what point I came up with the counterfeiting. And I also forget at what point I came up with the touch tasting. But obviously those two things are linked, right? If you have just a counterfeiting plot, then they're really slowed down because go through this whole, every time you find a coin, you have to go through this whole process and rigmarole of either weighing the coins against a coin that you know is genuine to see if it weighs a different amount or like melting it down to find out what metals it's comprised of or like all of this science bullshit, right? <laughs> and I was like, that takes a long time. Let's just speed it the hell up by doing some magic about it. So having it be a very low magic system where all you can do is touch a metal and know what metal it is. And different people have it to different intensities. Some people are much more sensitive at it than others in the same way that some people are super tasters and some people don't have it at all. That made it a lot more convenient for the plot that they could know immediately whether a coin was genuine or not. Also, it opened up a couple opportunities for thinking about the ways in which this gift would manifest. It's a little bit like synesthesia. So they don't just touch it and know that it's iron. They touch it and know that it's iron because of whatever sensory experiences they have from it. This is also kind of a silly magic to have because a lot of times you can just look at iron in the real world and know that it's iron. But if you have, for example, 14 karat white gold, you don't know what proportion of that is actually gold unless you have worked at a jewelry store or have studied metallurgy. Kato experiences these sense memories, I guess we could call them, of things associated with each metal. And so he would have to learn which ones are associated with which metals as a process of like living in the world. Like this is just a thing he can do, you know? What is it about economics that you want to add it to your fiction? There's this scene relatively early on where Kado's kind of drunk and he's doing that thing that I have done at bars many times that many of my friends Friends have been that guy where they're just like telling you everything that you need to know and puncturing every myth about what you thought you understood about economics. And I'm just curious about how all of this finds its way into your fiction. Economics, like you say to someone, oh, I have a lot of economics in my book and immediately their eyes glaze over because that's the most boring possible thing that they could imagine a person writing about, right? Except that money is so fascinating because it's just this collective hallucination that we've all kind of agreed upon. And it is humans being really, really, really human. It's humans being human just like so hard, just going like full out. That's what money is. And I really love humans. 
humans and I really love writing about humans and I really like writing about humans being human. Once you have all of that background, economics starts to become a little bit less boring and a little bit more intriguing because it makes people act in really weird ways. Once you have this collective hallucination, you start to forget that it's just a shorthand that we've all agreed upon. And the game that we're all playing together starts to become more important than people. Like if you've ever played Monopoly with your family, at the beginning of the game, you can invent house rules and that you can change the rules of the game and agree on how you're going to play the game. Once you're in the middle, it's way, way harder to change the rules of the game. We in the modern world are now in a game of capitalism and we could change the rules because we made them up, but we also can't because we're locked in. So that's kind of why I love writing about economics because it's about this game that we're playing together and it's about people telling stories to each other and it's about this implicit promise that we're making to each other and that was the element of economics that I really emphasized in this book because that's such a big part of their relationship like the whole fealty relationship is all based on promises and trust and keeping your word yeah and I loved how you sneak up on the reader like there is this moment where you've been charmed by these characters so you're willing to listen to them talk about whatever and you sort of have this whole thing and it's only a little after that big deep conversation about like yeah if our money is not worth what we say it's worth here are all of the ramifications of that and you're sort of like oh yeah okay right I understand how that works sort of on a national scale or a global scale and it's only later on that you're like oh right they're also talking about interpersonal dynamics yeah It's also about fealty and being in love. And yes, exactly, exactly. It's about the relationship as well. Like I said a couple minutes ago, more times that you can make two things interact in a book and cross over and impact each other, you get points for that. It's fascinating to think about the confluence of love and power in storytelling, but it's also near and dear to my heart to think about it in how it affects us in our day-to-day lives, out here in this bleak, real world. There's one writer whose work has long given me hope, who continues to inspire me, who continues to push my ideas of what is possible forward. It started when I read her book, Emergent Strategy. It continued when I read Pleasure Activism, her novella, Grievers, that's turning into a trilogy from AK Press. I'm talking about Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian has been growing healing ideas in public through multi-genre writing, music, podcasts, 25 years of movement facilitation, somatics, scholarship about Octavia Butler, her work as a doula. She's an author, she's an editor, the founder of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. She is a writer whose work offers a generosity of spirit that I find unparalleled out there in the world today. I'm so honored that she was willing to offer some thoughts about this intersection of love and power and genre. Throughout the science fiction that I read and the visionary fiction that I read, one of the things I'm always interested in is the balance of love and power. If they can coexist, if either of them is off, what I mean by that is, can you really have a loving relationship in a place where there's a power imbalance? And can you hold power in any way worth holding and in any way that is responsible to a community and responsible to a planet or to the people on it if there's not love at the center? The stories I love are the ones where power is discussed in a really transparent way, held in a really transparent way, and gets to flow freely amongst the people who are there. 
I think about the kind of love that Octavia wrote about that Anyanwu had for her descendants, for all the people she was trying to protect, that she had immense power more than anyone else she met, but it was a power that could only be used to protect. It was a power that could only be used to heal. It wasn't a power that she used to dominate or to take over anything. And I wonder what it takes to cultivate power like that in the face of power that seeks to destroy. I also think a lot about the characters who have relinquished the way we think of power, power over others, in order to experience a loving power. And I think of Shevik and the Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, which is one of my favorite ways of reading about love and thinking about love. There's a ton of freedom at the center. There's a ton of camaraderie and care and transparency and honesty and non-ownership, right? What does it look like to hold power in a way that neither person or none of the people involved own each other, but they just really get to love each other. So these are some of the things I think about. And as I'm beginning my own journey of writing longer form fiction, it's one of the things I keep coming up against can I even notice the power dynamics that feel so normal to me and can I make them seem abnormal <laughs> and can I normalize a different kind of power dynamic a power dynamic where power is held with and between and at the center of relationships of care and community and love where love means the willful extension towards collective growth so these are some of the thoughts I'm having on love and power I hope they're of use to you on your genre journey Well, I'm so excited to just have a whole new slew of books to read. What an exciting time to be alive, to discover that there's a whole genre, a whole section of the bookstore or of the library that you didn't know anything about previously and that you wouldn't dare to tread in. Makes you wonder, what are the other things that you're not opening yourself up to? What are the other people who you aren't opening yourself up to? Again, it all comes back to this feeling of community and of taking care of one another. Sometimes that means looking out for your neighbor. Sometimes it means having to share a bed because there's only one bed. And uh, <laughs> uh, I tried to do a goof, but um, I don't know enough about romance books yet. And I'm just going to sound like an idiot. So this has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. 